Listeners may be forgiven for sitting back and sighing, ah yes, what a wonderful tenor Richard Tarver was. Whereas the actual singer of Vienna City of My Dreams, himself a modest man from a modest Irish background, would be flattered, indeed honoured. magnificent voice actually belongs to one of the finest bel canto tenors ever produced in these islands. A singer overlooked and sometimes unbelievably treated with indifference. Still residing in a suburb of his birthplace Wolverhampton, John McHugh was born of Irish descent on July 23, 1911, one of six children. My great-grandfather was born in Notting County, Mayo. My father was born in Wolverhampton. My mother's maiden name was Flatley. We originally came from Knocking County Mayo. That's where my grandfather was from, in County Mayo. His father was killed during the so-called Great War of 1914, and fortunately, his mother encouraged his natural talent with sing-songs around the parlour piano at home and in the choir at his local churches. I used to sing at St Patrick's Church. I was an altar boy there. And then we used to give concerts in the church hall. We had a men's club. I sang one night there, and the Father Grimaldi, who was a priest at Snow Hill, he was the leading bass in the Vatican choir. He was a thoroughbred Roman, but he was a doctor of music as well. All I sang was one, one chorus of Catherine Maborne, and that's all I could sing. <laughs> and uh, he came up to me and said, you've got, you've got a very good voice, my boy. He said, if you'd like to come and join my choir, I'll teach you to sing. So I left St. Patrick's and I went to St. Mary's and John's in the choir there. He taught he used to take me two or three nights a week and teach me to sing his songs in Italian. And of course I became in his Italian style. St. Patrick's Church closed down, you know, it was put, pulled down. A lot of the Irish people just scattered. A big Irish colony there, there was Herbert Street, you name it, all round that area. They're all, nearly all Irish. There were fights, of course, but they were drunken fights most of the time. And any trouble with the domestic trouble, Father Darmody was always said, the police wouldn't go down, they'd send Father Darmody down from St. Patrick's with his shillelagh. Very much a community, yes, very much so. I mean, you couldn't miss Mass at all. Three Masses Sunday morning. I used to serve the three Masses, catechism in the afternoon and benediction in the evening. They thought I was going to be a priest. 
but I was too fond of the horses. His Irish roots were strong, and at the age of 12, he was already entertaining the clients of the town's Limerick Inn with the popular songs of the day. thought myself as uh, coming from an Irish family and I always thought myself as an Irish singer because I sang mostly Irish songs. It was only later in life, that um, later on in my career, that I, I decided that I was going to be an operatic tenor. And of course I, I recorded most Irish songs, Kathleen Morning, all those Irish songs I, I sang and uh, I was no more or less as a sort of uh, pseudo-Irish tenor. In 1936, and still greatly underestimating his own talent, John was persuaded to enter a BBC singing competition. The BBC organised a competition all over the country for amateur talent, and they had different areas, heats and uh, rounds, you know. I entered at the Gaumont Cinema in Wolverhampton. It was a new cinema then. The manager of the... Gilmont went and got a form and he filled it in for me and I, I entered this competition and I won it. The first prize was five pounds. The BBC took all the uh, winners from the heats and areas and then they uh, had a, a competition, you know, a, a broadcast. The first time I went to broadcast, I caught a bad cold and I couldn't sing. So the next time I went to broadcast, the king abdicated and I couldn't sing. I thought, well, this is, <laughs> I'll never get to sing now. But I did eventually sing. The public had to vote, the listeners had to vote. John won that competition and went on to win the final national broadcast with a staggering margin for those days of 11,000 postcard votes. Afterwards, he was given a broadcast and entertained for three days by the BBC. But an extraordinary thing happened to me on the night I didn't sing. I'm walking down Piccadilly and I come outside the Café Royal and two women bundled me into the Café Royal and when they came into the light, they were all painted up, they were prostitutes. I could see I was a real boy from the country, you know. So I, I ran out of the Café Royal and ran all the way up Piccadilly, Regent Street, and back to my hotel. That was my first episode in London. After the competition, Lady Dorothy Peplow, Lord Donnelly's sister, she wrote to me and said what a beautiful voice I had, and I told her I wanted to go to Italy, but I couldn't afford to go to Italy. Lady Dorothy Peplow had been listening at home to that broadcast. She was a patron of the arts and an amateur composer with many influential connections in the world of professional opera, including Mark Rayfield. And she arranged for me to 
go and visit him. He lived at Ascot, and John McCormick lived at Ascot too. So anyway, I went to Ascot and um, I, I, I sang to her, and this Jewish teacher said, I can only train him for six months, then he must go to Italy, because he's got a beautiful natural voice. So anyway, they arranged with Father Grimaldi to take me to Rome. So he took me to Rome and he played me with this most famous teacher of bel canto singing in Italy. Old teachers used to come to him and used to say, Tenore inglese, bella voce. It soon became obvious that John would require the best tuition that money could provide. After six months with Pio di Pietro in Rome, Lady Peplo was convinced that he had the potential to become a great operatic tenor in the Italianate style, and later that same year he performed professionally for the first time in a Pathé film profile. John continued his vocal training with the celebrated London-based Florentine tenor Dino Bargioli, whilst studying music theory at Trinity College London. By 1938, already much in demand in concert, John broadcast regularly on radio and was one of the first singers to broadcast on television. And by this time, John had already made his first record. That was in March of the same year. One BBC producer was particularly impressed. He said if John McHugh had been about four or five inches as tall, he'd have been got to give to the English musical stage. He said because not only can he sing, but he can act as well, which is rare among singers. They usually stiff and, you know, all they're thinking about is their voice. Whereas I'm inclined to let myself go with the music and express myself with my voice. Bel canto singing is music in your voice. That means beautiful voice. And it's uh, when you sing, you sing as you speak, more or less. Because uh, when my teacher in Italy, when I went to him, he said, You see, this is a piano. Can you play the piano? No. Well, the piano is a master of you, isn't it? Until you can play it. Well, your voice, until you know how to use it, is a master of you. You have got to master your voice and know exactly what to do with your voice just as a pianist is a master of the piano. Which is perfectly true, because, I mean, if you don't know how, you t how to use your voice, then the voice is master of you, isn't it? Because uh, that was my trouble to start with, I suppose, because I had the voice, but I didn't know how to use it properly. And that's what this teacher in Italy taught me, so that uh, 
He said, you should be able to sing as you speak. Well, I, I, I can just rattle up to you. Younger than springtime are you, softer than starlight are you, warmer than winds of June are the gentle lips you gave me, gayer than laughter are you, sweeter than music are you. You see, I'm not, I'm speaking more or less. I haven't got to sort of do a good torsion in that. And I mean, I'm 91. John's vibrant vocal potential at the start of his career can be judged from this rare test recording of Donna Non Vide Mai, a spur of the moment effort made while awaiting the arrival of the orchestra before a recording session. singing in the studio. In those days, you had to move backwards and forwards from the microphone, you see. Well, I, I let myself go, you know. The producer said, good God, he said, don't, he said, I said, well, I'm an operatic tenor. Despite this positive start to his career, he was to encounter many obstacles. However, his first setback didn't happen in the recording studio. It emanated from the dark storm clouds of World War II that were gathering in 1939. With members of the Peplow household having volunteered for active service, McHugh felt that he should follow suit and returned from Italy to spend four and a half years as a private in the Royal Berkshire Regiment. Well, I had to come back because of the war. You see, I was there when Hitler visited Mussolini, and Mussolini had to stand on a box and make him as tall as Hitler. Hitler was a great admirer of Mussolini, you know. He modelled himself on Mussolini, because he thought Mussolini was a great fellow. That's why they became great pals. And I remember standing outside Del Popolo where Mussolini made his peace from. And they were, Il Duce, Il Duce. Put that and I felt somebody punch me in the back. Il Duce, Il Duce. In Rome, do what Rome does. During the Blitz, Covent Garden and other London theatres were closed. When they reopened in 1942, singers, tenors especially, were much needed to replace those who had joined the forces. I just came back from Italy straight into the army when he came out after five years and I had uh, a birth duodenal. So it was some time before I actually re-established myself. Uh, 
And the first job I did was tour the country with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, finishing at the Albert Hall in London. That was a great help to me. The manager of the gramophone company arranged that for me. I got, only got ten guineas a time for that, but all my expenses were paid. Because I did about three shows a week, which wasn't too bad, 30 quid a week. And, um, but I mean, I, it wasn't just one week, it was probably three, four concerts a week. And I never got one bad report. The, at Watford they said the greatest thrill of the evening was the wonderful voice of John McHugh. And I was singing big opera, all the big operatic arias on with the Motley, and Aida, Carmen, Bobham, Nesson Dormer. I was the first to record Nesson Dormer. Fifty years ago I recorded Nesson Dormer. But I had to do it with the Royal Covent Garden Orchestra, but I had to do it in English because they said every Tom, Dick and Harry Italian tenor sings Nesson Dormer. But nobody sings this in English and you're Italian trained. However, after the war, the euphoria of victory subsided and the opportunities for performance artists had altered drastically, particularly, John felt, at Covent Garden. Well, they had a crowd of other singers there, you know, singers of no repute at all. The way they treated me, I thought it was terrible, considering, you know, what in, in, it, in America they would have taken you in and tortured the job. Uh, if you'd been a soldier, they'd have looked after you and, and you know... Tortured the operas and everything else. It was not surprising then that John McHugh, one of the most eligible and most Italianate of young tenors, felt excluded from the British opera stage. Ten o'clock one Saturday morning and rang me up and said, would I go along and sing to them? So when I got there, the girl with the board came up to me and she said, yes, she said, Mr McHugh, you're number nine. I said, excuse me, I was number nine in the army. I said, my name's John McHugh, I'm not a number. She said, well, we say that so the people don't know who it is that's singing. I said, well, that's no compliment to me, is it? So I sang, and the conductor who conducted uh, all my concerts with me, with the London Philharmonic, was the conductor of Covent Garden. And uh, when he, he went to the, I went to the gramophone company to make some more records, and when I arrived there, the manager said, oh, he said, Carl Rankle was here the other day, that was the conductor. He said, and he said, you sang badly. And I told him what had happened. He said, they did that to you? He said, they wouldn't do that to a third-rate Italian tenor. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll record both arias from Turin, including the Nessonoma, and I got first-class notices for it. The Times said that John McHugh has made his finest record to date, not the Nessonoma, the Numbianzera Liu. Oh, 
when they heard this, they sent for me again. So they rang me up Saturday morning again. So I turned around and told them to get stuffed. I just said, if the recording of the two audios was not good enough, then there's no point in me coming. And I put the phone down. Wouldn't you? They treated you like that? This was just after the war, after I served four and a half years in the army, and they brought over these Italian tenors, all these Italian tenors, and I was supposed to be better than some of them, and they, they treated me like that. I thought, no. So then I went into the lighter side. Never asked to appear at Covent Garden again, John pursued a career by means of radio and the concert platform, which could hardly be seen as failure. However, an operatic career would have brought John the international recognition he deserved. Ironically, he became a recording sensation and the instigating force behind McHugh's development was Victor Kahn of Columbia Records. In 1943, he appeared in the film romance I'll Walk Beside You after John McCormack had turned the part down. You know what she wanted, John McCormack, making the film? £15,000 he wanted. They weren't, well, they weren't spending that much on the film. And you know how much I got? 25 guineas. And I was star of the film. But I was in the army at the time, I had to get a special leave from the general. It was a day's work. So I said to the conductor, Treachery's Pipe, greatest government of the day's work. He said, I'll see what I can do. So I got 50. <laughs> Later on, I met, I met a fellow when, when another film I made uh, called I'll Turn to You, and there was an, an American. He said, what a wonderful voice you have. By the way, he said, uh, would you be interested in doing um, singing for Stuart Granger in Caesar and Cleopatra? I said, yes. If I got you £200 for it, would that be all right? Is that enough for you? I said, oh, yes, that's enough. I was making this other film at the time and they sent a car for me to Riverside Studios to go to Denham. And when I got there, this fellow, Pascal, he was the producer, he said, oh, no, you're too late now. He said, we're finished now. You have to come again. They sent me back in the taxi to send me home. Came the next time and uh, when I arrived, oh, no, he said, I'm sorry, but you'll have to come again. I said, I'm not used to being treated like this. He said, I'll ask them to put another £100 on your fee to send a taxi to your home, take you to the studios, give you your lunch and take a taxi back. He said, I'll ring you back in half an hour, see what they say. He rang back in half an hour and he said, they're going to pay it. <laughs> a sequel to I'll Walk Beside You entitled Levestrom was proposed, but came to nothing. In 1946, John McHugh recorded Airs from Tosca, the same time as Geely released his rendition of Caccini's Amarilli. One newspaper critic wrote, McHugh's voice has power and sweetness and a human quality that seems lacking in that of Geely. Geely's voice is still that of the master, but McHugh's voice has a richness and a moving quality that are rare in the great voices of today. In 1947, an opportunity arose for John to make his operatic debut 
and fate decided that it would be on Irish soil. I made my debut in the Olympia in Dublin, in Traviata, and it was a, a season of international opera. It was during the horse show week. It was an experience, because it's not a very glamorous part, uh, Alfredo, in Traviata. In fact, he had less than three weeks in which to learn and rehearse the part, and was coached by Dr Berens, a Jewish refugee from Vienna. John then appeared in the first televised music programme for BBC and numerous recordings and regular performances on Mantovani's programme Among My Souvenirs quickly followed. This episode of John's career was crowned by extensive and demanding concert tours as a resident singer with the London Philharmonic under Carl Rankel. These tours earned John superb notices and this sphere was to bring him into contact with many fine colleagues, including Isabel Bailey, Dennis Noble and Gladys Ripley. I saw a maiden sit and sing She lulled a little child, a sweet lady was later appointed principal conductor at the Royal Opera, and an entree to the operatic mecca from McHugh might have been expected. However, it was not forthcoming, and another door closed. I did pantomime for five years. Puss in Boots it was, with Tommy Cooper, Jimmy Edwards, Boris Forsyth. They were all the stars in the show later on in my life. I used to play the part of the old cobbler, Crispin, an old man, a big Irish scene, especially for me. And I also remember I was at Streatham coming out, there was some Irishman digging the road up outside. I said, you know, John McHugh's marvellous his age. <laughs> then I went in Glamorous Night, and uh, Ivan Novello paid me a great compliment. He, he, was, um, he was appearing at... It was in Liverpool, and we were appearing at the theatre, big theatre, and he was appearing at the Variety Theatre. And uh, when I met him... Uh, he, had, he threw a party after King's Rhapsody and he invited me to it. And he said, um, he said, John, he said, your lovely voice. He said, I must write a show for you. What we do, what we were doing, use your voice in it. I must. Three months later, he died of a heart attack. Paradise here in my heart. Oh, me. 
I remember touring with Gracie Peel, the last tour she did at the country. And um, when Mario Lansing made Because You're Mine, the publisher sent me the song and asked me if I'd include it in my programme. And um, I stopped the show. They wouldn't let me up the stage. And she followed me, Gracie Peels. So anyway, the editor of the Musical Express, he was following the show around when he was up north. And um, John, he said, Gracie was furious. She was marching up and down the corridor. And when's this cantata going to finish? She said, because you, you stopped the show. So the bloody world taking it out. So she put my song out of the show to Liverpool. <laughs> because you're mine, the brightest star I see looks on my love and then with me. Because you're mine. To celebrate the Festival of Britain in 1951, Laurence Olivier brought the entire cast of Menotti's Constable from New York. At short notice, John was drafted to sing The Conjurer, a tour de force which went unnoticed. The press had not been notified. At the same time, another great British tenor, Tom Burke, recognised John's talent and was to include him in his plans to set up a much-needed British opera company. However, to add insult to McHugh's previous injury, Burke's efforts sadly collapsed. It seemed that fate had now decided that the concert platform was to be his metier. However, throughout the 1950s, John regularly broadcast on radio in one particular programme until he was suddenly replaced. The new producer came on the programme. He said, uh, we're going to make a change. I said, I think that's disgusting to treat me like this. He said, why? I said, well, I said, if, if this was a commercial station, you'd be offering me more money to stay on the programme. He said, well, it's not the uh, commercial station, it's the BBC. He said, I'm putting a baritone singer in now. So I said, well, I still think it's wrong of you to take me out now. He said, well, go and see the, the head one. He said, well, there's nothing to do with me. He said, the producer wants to make a change. He said, it's nothing to do with me. He wants to make a change, he's the producer, he said, and I can't see anything wrong with it. So that finished me, so then I went up, Manchester offered me um, work. They said, we haven't got a singer of your type up here. Would you come and sing 
So I left London and I went up there. Then I had a, my own series called uh, A Song for You. I used to do about two or three shows a week. And uh, then television came in and of course, well, complete cut. So I went back to London, saw an advertisement in the, one of the papers, uh, wanted a manager for a pub. So I took this job as a manager of a pub in um, Islington. That was a disaster. One of the barmen ran off with the takings on the Monday morning. <laughs> I was in my office, done all the, collected all the money and put all the banking ready for everything. When I came up, they'd bug it up with the money. I got the sack, of course. I had no agent. The only agent I had was the gramophone company manager, the artist manager. He used to pay me quite a bit of work, but I never got an agent myself. Of course, I had to do what I could then. I went back to Manchester and uh, lived there a bit longer. And uh, I bought the light, I bought the tendency of another pub. There was a bookmaker and uh, he lent me the money to buy the tenancy of the pub because I was a bit on the rocks by then because I'd had this illness and that was a disaster. They were fiddling me left, right and centre. The chap who used to come around, he said, I can't understand it, Mr McHugh. He said, you're taking more money than most places. He said, and you're making a loss. And I kind of said, bloody staff robbing me. That's what it is. That was that. Oh, vision entrancing, oh, lovely and light, my heart of thy dancing grows faint for delight. It throbs and it flutters, it flutters and throbs, and strives like a wild bird to follow thy flight. But John, for all his sincere and sterling efforts, and despite many acclamations by the press, he still failed to win the recognition of the establishment. In later years, he was left with very little to show for his popularity, even in the way of royalties. John McHugh seems to have suffered from deliberate neglect. Fortunately, a vast amount of his recordings have survived, and thankfully, the voice of John McHugh lives on, a voice from the wilderness.
Ez the old actor would say, I died thrice a night, but the very me not. And I'm coming back.